moderation is for cowards, just a military kind of an expression mm. that says, like, you, whatever you do, do it to take it to the absolute limit of, of intellect, capacity, skill, whatever it is, to make sure that it embodies everything that you believe in and you can render that visible to the world because that will resonate with people and people gravitate towards that sheer kind of lunacy of, of just commitment. Psych the studio. This is a very special episode. We've got Derwin back, custom industrial. Everyone knows and loves Derwin in the high-end architectural construction space. Um, and he's brought a very special guest, Brett Phillips from 3D Design. So we might thanks for having me. <laughs> we thanks might start with Brett just to so my very cursory level understanding, and I've looked a little bit into your practice and I understand it's very multifaceted and multidisciplinary mm. and you also do publishing and and then and, and all those other things my understanding is sort of 3 deep is at at its core a brand identity firm branding and creative branding and creative mm. yeah so if you want the two-minute backstory yeah i mean I'd, I'd love that and especially just our audience is very construction industry based uh -huh. so just within that context like they might not not even know what brand id is okay um so i think that's one of the goals as well for this be fantastic if we can educate some people on on brand ID and how they should think about it in the context of their businesses. Sure. Yeah. Well, we stepping back 26 years, I started the business um, with my business partner, David Rumfeld. Um, I met David first day of first year uni, mm -hmm. and then we sat opposite each other ever since. Um, we started off primarily in the branding uh, space, but within the category of the sort of arts cultural space. So we did a lot of a lot of work for um, performing arts companies, ballet, theatre, opera, contemporary dance, those sorts of things, and then really um, sort of found our rhythm and found our feet in the super premium to luxury space. And now we pretty much operate exclusively in those spaces working with brand owners to understand um, the strategic position that they want to own for their brand and and uniting that brand vision with their business vision. So in a simple terms, it's it's we don't just work in the creative space. We, we, we have to bridge the gap between business vision and brand and how we align one or more brands to help business owners achieve um, their business goals. Yeah. So we've been relentlessly pursuing that ever since. Um, and then, you know, I guess a number of years ago we – came across a number of clients within your within this space. So I guess some of the, the first clients we had were architects. So we worked with people like John Model Architects for, you know, the best part of 15 years, um, BKK Architects, all sorts of people, Jolson, um, uh, to to kind of help solidify their position. And, when, and you know, the more they understand um, the role that their brand plays in strategically positioning their business, then the more our work comes into focus and, um, you know, we then need to work at the pointy end of the sword to try and figure out, you know, how to how to create competitive advantage through brand. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. I th so, Derwin, I understand um, Brett worked on your brand with with Custom Industrial. He did indeed. Yeah, yeah. it was great. I mean, I, I think that'd be a great little because I think people are quite familiar with Derwin's brand. You know, seeing his, you know his presence, whether it's online or otherwise. Could we just to help everyone understand because brand ID is like it's one of those things I struggle with it as well. 
maybe in the context of Derwin's brand, like what were we thinking about when we were crafting that? Like, like what was the strategy of thinking? Sure. Well, there's two sides to, to a brand project. There's the strategic and the creative, mm. right? So the creative is the bit that everyone sees, obviously, um, and the, how, how strategy manifests itself visually into the world and there's a but what sits behind that for us is all the strategic decisions to say well within a particular category or space who are you what do you stand for um what do you believe in and how do we help um orientate the business in such a way that you stand sovereign and distinguished in the context of all your competitive space so when i've known doing for quite a while even before um we were starting to kind of engage professionally but it was understanding how to reconcile who Derwin is and what custom industrial stood for and at least getting some thinking down about Derwin's vision for the future and the spaces and the kind of people that he wanted to work with and the, and the, the extraordinary level of detail and resolve and, and finish and kind of thinking that goes into his work. How do we start to um, manifest that visually without overcomplicating it and letting the work talk for itself. So, you know, all of those conversations can form the backbone of the strategy. And then from a creative perspective, it's really a light touch with us when it comes to custom industrial because the work is the hero and Derwin is the iconoclast that sits behind all that. So it's not about us getting in the way of that. It's just about providing a very, um, like I said, light touch or a canvas for that work to flourish and for, for Derwin's you know vision for that work to actually come to life so yeah it's a that's a slightly that's a it's an interesting branding exercise because it's not it's not that it's anti-brand it's just that it's a, a very quiet brand um, mm. because there's other things going on yeah and and i'd like to ask you doing because a lot of guys in your position you know artisans fantastic at their craft would say well fuck my product speaks for itself i don't need i don't need the you know, the logo, the the website, you know, even a domain for your email. I don't need all of that. I, I, there's there's demand for my work. So what compelled you to to think about that and 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 pursue building like doing a brand ID project? Well, pr primarily as a creative with what I do, I wanted my visual representation of my brand to be in align with my work. And previous to that it, it probably wasn't, you know, if I'm honest. So to be able to be in a position where I can engage three deep and go through that process and understand that um, what's your view on what I put out and how does that align with, with it visually in the world. So, you know, my thinking behind that was I wanted that those two to align because I wanted to level up the business a couple of levels to jump for, further ahead. So, um I think there's the, the other thing that we talked a lot about as well is it's under so apart from the visual because everyone I guess the thing that distinguishes our business is that it's not just aesthetics right like it's can, not graphic design this, graphic, isn't, this business, isn't a graphic design business no our business isn't about graphic design right? our business is working with business people and brand owners to achieve business vision right so the, the other thing with custom industrial is that, and Derwin's vision is it's not just a, a kind of a mono vision. There isn't just a, you know, one trajectory for custom industrial and just, you know, fabricates work for, for um, you know, architects and, and um, specifiers. But it's about understanding the ecosystem and understanding, okay, long-term vision and play. How is this business going to evolve over the long-term and what will be bolted onto it? What will sit complementary to it? Um, 
you know, how do we navigate or set a path to navigate that course in business that's not just a short-term aesthetic response to badge badge a business. So, you know, we're we're doing strategies for for some of our fine jewellery and luxury clients. It's a five-year business play that says, right, well, based on your existing portfolio brands, what do we need to have within our armour to navigate the competitive space, not just now, but in five years' time, right? So working with Derwin on that is about understanding, well, this is what custom industrial is now, but what will it be in five or ten years' time? Yeah. No, I I really – I very much resonate that with that. No, like with my business, the idea isn't to build a cabinet-making business. It's to build the brand and then opportunities will magically come. You know? 100%. So – so let's say Louis Vuitton wouldn't work with custom industrial should he have not have or would be less likely to work with him should he have not such a well thought out and well presented canvas or brand ID yeah. on, upon which he's presenting his work. Totally. Or, yeah. they might, or they might not engage with custom industrial but there might be a, a sub-brand or, a, yeah. or an ancillary brand that they will engage with because we're positioned it to actually talk to them. Yeah, and, and you're aligned and you have the same vibe and the same feel and the alignment in your brand and the way you're communicating with the world. So, but that, you know, that's something that's so hard for, for trade-based businesses. Like we're incredibly lucky. So mm-hmm. my brand was done by Richard Henderson. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yep. And, and so how, and how I'd had, had access to, to Richard Henderson is my uncle, he, he won a um, Agda award in 2018, uh, 2014 when I finished high school. So he took me to Tasmania. He doesn't speak much English. Mm. So then I met all these designers and I sort of, that's how I sort of got, this idea of like, what is brand ID? You know, mm. it's it's such a comp, such a weird abstract thing for for tradies to think about. Yeah. So I yeah I just really want to ha- like how would you help? I'm sure you've had clients maybe earlier on who don't understand brand ID. How do you try to convey that? How no, do you- look I, these days and even early on there was this you know there's this adage in graphic design land that you know a lot of designers say that you know. They help, you know, clients come to them because they don't know what they need and their role as designers to help sort that out, right? Everyone that comes to us knows exactly why they're coming to us. And that's why I say earlier right. days, maybe, yeah, yeah. I don't, like, how do you, uh, I, I know it's, it's, uh, you, know, you certainly don't need clients who don't understand what the value of branding, but if you, if there was someone you really cared about and you wanted to help them understand the value of it, what angle would you go at it from? Um, in relation to our business, I go at it from, business success and opportunity, right? Because a lot of the clients that we deal with, even in the early days, um, understand the value of opportunity and and quite entrepreneurial in terms of pursuing their vision, right? So they're visionaries themselves. So our job is to help them navigate and understand the landscape and saying, well, the true value of your brand over the long term is this, right? So in, in the property and development space, it's really interesting because you could argue that you know, maybe over the past 10 years it's been very transformative where a lot of developers have understood that, you know, um, traditionally you create a project brand in terms of project marketing mm. and you um, you put that out to the market for a short period of time and then you sell the property and then all of a sudden the project brand's gone and the only thing that might remain is the name of the building, right? So what a lot of our clients um, understand is that every project is an opportunity to build value back into their parent and their master brand and that that allows then long-term their master brand, like their, their parent company, to actually navigate all sorts of territories. So we worked um, f- with a client that might be um, 
I guess, relevant or visible to your audience would be someone like Jonathan Hallen at BPM. BPM, yeah. So we worked with Jonathan and, uh, you know, that particular job um, and that client was really polarising for a lot of people because, um, one, they either the aesthetic really kind of put them off because it was very, um, you know, in some ways very hedonistic and very aesthetic driven and really dark and moody and, and things. But what we really did was hold a mirror up to Jonathan and his vision and his you know vision for the world and reflect that back and capture that in in terms of the brand world that we were creating for him and because it was so authentic and congruent to where Jonathan wanted to take his brand and his business that was polarizing for a lot of people right but what we did for BPM was we set a platform in place that allowed Jonathan to navigate all sorts of territories so Within an 18-month period, you know, we'd created six project brands. We'd created a hotel brand. We'd, you know, recalibrated the personal kind of tone of voice in market, all sorts of stuff. So that no matter what opportunity Jonathan went after for BPM, there was a really clear understanding of what the BPM world was, what it stood for, and the credibility and gravitas and patina of what that, that anyone buying into his world was buying into. Now, I know that he had a number of agencies have a go at that over the, you know, before they came to us and um, I guess it was upon us to really understand Jonathan and what he stood for and how he viewed the world before we went about creating a brand that really reinvented the nature of his business and where he was going. So, you know, functionally we went from branding individual projects that had no relationship to be, you know, tangible conceptual relationship to BPM to branding everything BPM. Now, yeah. a lot of people from Paul, you know, Bridcorp to, um, you know, all sorts of people along the way have had a go at it um, and there's some doing it more successfully than others. You know, Tim Gurner, for instance, um, understands his brand really, really well and how to then yeah. apply that to various project brands and, and things. So, you know, it's not as if it was the first time it was done. It was just the first time it was done for Jonathan in a way that was provocative and, controversial and you know really um really moody and really kind of um visceral and no one you know from a industry perspective really got their head around it at the start but we weren't talking to them we were talking to consumers so it's about how we got people to buy into that bpm world and 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 leverage desire and emotion as a precursor for for buying into property so it was that's a really interesting project that um i guess within the context of a brand discussion is a really visible one to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, the the really watered down, much less sophisticated way I talk about a similar thing with tradies, for example, is, um, you know, that first five, 10 minute conversation you have with a client, that, may, that, that, that determines a lot. You know, that determines a lot in that relationship. When you're building a brand and when you're communicating, you're just doing that at scale. Mm. You're just doing that with mo- multiple people. Now, Jonathan's brand may have been misunderstood prior to you guys working on him, working with him. But I'm sure maybe if you put in put him in a room with anyone for 20 minutes, they'd, they'd, they'd fully understand it. Mm. So all you're doing is communicating who he is. Yeah, we're giving, brand. Brand. we're giving him a mouthpiece. I mean, we're amplifying everything that he believes in and stands for and giving him a mouthpiece through brand mm. to go and pursue all sorts of stuff from you know, various brand alignments to you know um, project acquisition or funding or whatever it may be. We're essentially creating value in in a brand that allow him to to pursue business opportunity, right? So, and in really simple terms, it's giving the brand a amplifying the message from the brand and giving it a, a mouthpiece. Yeah, 
Derwin, could you speak to your relationship? Because, you know, you, you work in different disciplines, but in, in a, there's a lot of similarities, so I'm sure that's why you guys were drawn, drawn together. Yeah, for sure. Like, well, both, as Brett's just explained, both our businesses are fairly detail-focused. So for Brett to understand Jonathan and BPM, and like what you say, if anyone's been in the room with him for 20 minutes, they would know that, but then no one previously had executed that mm. prior to 3D. So it's about... You know, our similarities are understanding what our clients' needs are just in different industries and, um, you know, focusing on that and understanding what the client wants to be able to then, you know, put it through our systems to be able to execute, Yeah, that, you know, and hopefully beyond expectations. But Yeah. Yeah, it's just, um, yeah, the seeking to understand the consumer is, is something that I think uh, like within our industry it's, it's – uh, People don't think in that way as much as I think they sh they should or they would benefit from. Just you know? what you said yeah. before, like makers and creatives are not thinking about their brand, mm. but no matter what industry you're in, you're in the service industry prior mm. to that. So if you're giving good service and understanding what your client wants, because they're the ones that are bringing, you know, the financial to your business and wanting to commission mm. you. So if you understand them and you know can um, over over deliver on what their expectations are, then. You've got a client for life, as well. Yeah, and and you and if you don't understand them, then inherently you're not operating efficiently because you're not mm. you're not um, purposefully you know acting in a way that's that's servicing what their needs are. Mm. So so it's interesting from my perspective yeah. being you know um, having to act on behalf of doing and looking. Paul Rand, I think, is a designer that said it best. He said, "I don't design for my clients. I design for my clients' clients." So in us designing for custom industrial, it's not me just designing for Derwin. It's actually designing for the customers that intend to engage with and interact with Derwin because fundamentally that's the the brand transaction. It's not me just doing something for customers. It's not where it stops. So in understanding that that you know custom industrial needs to appeal, resonate, connect with, um, stimulate, um, you know, be a provocateur in certain in certain areas, but generate desire to his clients is actually what we're focused on. So there's there's a two-pronged kind of aspect of that. One is understanding Derwin's vision for the business, but another then trying to connect that to the people that he wishes to engage with. And yeah. that's where understanding client comes in for us because there's two. Yeah. Just at another level to yeah. what I would understand it as. Yeah. Is, uh, Brett's just coming in at, at like a totally sophisticated level. The way the way maybe you or I think about it is just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You just got to think so about what the client wants. Well, that's one yeah. of the reasons why, if not the main reason why I engaged with Brett in 3 deep. And I don't think I made any changes through the creative process. It was pretty quick and we were on the same level with what we wanted. And just that level of me knowing where the way Brett operates mm. in 3 deep and the thought process behind it. I thought, well, you know, I should be able to take it to another level without even having to just by engaging with yeah. 3D. So. I, I wonder, is there a systematic way or, or guiding principles for how you reverse engineer consumer psychology? Like what are do you, are there go-to questions or go-to pillars that you look at? Uh, well, I think, yeah, of course. But I think that, you know, over 26 years, it's it's hard to kind of surmise in, in, in a really mm -hmm. short piece of, I mean, it's upon us to understand in certain categories and spaces who it is that we need to connect with, right? Now, now the bulk of our work is done in the super premium to luxury space outside of the kind of built, you know, the architecture and design and fabrication categories. Could like, you drop some names? 
so that people know what Oh, look, um, you know, in fine jewellery, we're really proud of the work that we've done for Hardy Brothers over the past five years, repositioning a 165-year-old brand to appeal to a younger consumer. Harold's Luxury Department Store we dealt with in a retail sense for 14, nearly 14 years to reposition that business from a gentleman's suiting store into the luxury department juggernaut. Um, Louis Vuitton, from an activation perspective, um, vicinity group in terms of their various hotel and Chadston, you know, um, retail assets and their Chadston Hotel as a hotel asset. A lot of different retail con- customers. So it's upon us in certain spaces to, I mean, the, the point there is, is that every space has nuances when it comes to customer consideration and desire and Derwin and customer industrials category is no different, you know, People that are buying into Derwin's world are doing, they've got a number of agendas and a number of different sort of, um, I guess, emotional touch points that, you know, that resonate with them. So it's just different for different categories. So there are commonalities in our work. Fundamentally, it's around the stimulation of dreams and desire. That's what really underpins the bulk of our work. Dreams and desire. Yeah, because like, and we've talked about this a fair bit with doing is that the and, and not that I'll digress too much here, but it might be an interesting point for a really conceptual high level. Again, ridiculous. Like we got time. Like I don't know these these go. I, I don't know. Just if you need to go, let me know. But we can keep going. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I guess the thing, that, and it really comes down. If you were to ask me the crux of of what we're doing when we're connecting with people. The big difference between what we do and, and what people do in the mass market kind of FMCG space. And if you were to say to me, you know, what's the difference between luxury strategy and mass market strategy? Mass market products and services respond primarily to need. Right? And they do so on an axis of price versus function. Is what I'm getting commensurate with what I'm paying? So all the ads on TV, you'll see someone in you know, SUV ads buying a new SUV. They'll list off all the features. Comes with this, 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 and this, and then they'll put a price to it. And you're and as the consumer wanting and needing that product, you'll assess the function versus the price. Is what I'm getting commensurate with what I'm paying? In the luxury, super premium luxury world, it doesn't work like that. It's we're building what we call the um, and is referred to as the dream of exception. Right. So if this is reality, the further away from reality we position a brand in what we call a dream of exception, which is an exclusionary world, that to buy into that world, there's two keys, social stratification, money, and knowledge. So the further away we position a brand from the reality, this reality, the harder the access and that's what we call a dream of exception. Now, what sits at the core of that is the stimulation, spontaneous stimulation, stimulation of dreams and desire. You don't need, you don't, no one needs a $50 million Damien Hurst diamond encrusted skull, right? It's not why you're buying it. Well, I was thinking that over toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? So, so, you know, weekly shopping list. <laughs> you know, but I think it, you know, you're traversing different, you're operating in a different way in our space than you are in a mass market sort of an arena. But the same when a lot of clients that come to us, they might not be a luxury brand, but we're leveraging that strategy to build desire for their brand. Yeah, well, because inherent, I'm not sure if you would agree, but I, I sort of feel like consumers make decisions on an emotional level, especially in such a wealthy country like Australia, even when you're buying 
toothpaste or an SUV. Yeah, of course. But <laughs> that's that's one component. Yeah, I think you know, like you. But for your dream, that's a much larger component. The emotional side is such a is is the component, really. Correct. You, you yeah. you'll assess like a you know you see all the tradies in their hundred thousand dollar Raptors and whatever these days, right? <laughs> now you know you, you know, and then there's a stratification that goes with you know buying a tradies car or a Ute, right? Like beyond function. You know, prerequisite. Mate, totally. they, they should all get a van. That's yeah. what they need, a van. <laughs> but they'll go from, you know, again, they'll go from, they'll, they'll, they'll make sure that ticks the boxes from a functional perspective. Ticks, ticks the boxes. Ticks the boxes, right? <laughs> it's got and a then, tray. Yeah, it's got a tray. Debatable. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll layer something over the top of that. And that's where they, they'll either be on brand or aesthetic or like all sorts of, you know, other factors mm. that allow them to express the, I mean, Fundamentally, it's about self-actualization and self-expression, right? Yeah, in, it's in, social in, social signaling. That's right. Yeah. You have to bring to life, you know, you're going to bring to life things that you believe in mm. and you stand for and how you see the world. Mm. And most people do that through the things that they have mm. and how they present themselves. So, you know, there's, there's sort of fundamentals. We're dealing with people that understand all that and, and it's not for me to educate or explain that to them. We're actually, we're way beyond that. We're getting into actually doing it. So mm. I don't have to kind of a big part of my world these days isn't explaining that to people. It's just getting on and actually making it happen. Maybe most tradies either don't think that the vehicle they turn up into a job is representative of their brand either because it's ticking all their boxes totally. for their work and their life, more probably lifestyle than work sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's important I see. So, you know, if you turn up to a site and your tools are falling out of your van and, <laughs> You know, it's, it's all a reflection, you know, isn't it? Yeah, it's a reflection of who you are and who, yeah. who's engaging with you. So. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. We had this, um, and some of your listeners will have an understanding of who Ironside is. Um, Luke Scurry and Ironside um, Construction. Ironside is. Are they Flux? Is that them or no? Oh, that's Figurehead. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So Ironside is a commercial um, commercial builder um, that. Uh, tacitly was sort of associated in the early, in its early I can really see Ironside in, in, in your aesthetic, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Ironside with Luke yeah, that makes Luke, sense. Luke had a vision to 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 want to work with and connect and, and build for the, the most powerful and influential people in Australia. So in order to, you know, position a brand very differently from um, from others within that space, you know, we built meaning into the name, we built meaning into the the kind of aesthetic and the vernacular, you know, it was a lot of World War II kind of camouflage vernacular that was going on in there. It's talking about strength and power and Ironside as a term is a is a military term for strength and endurance and all those sorts of things, right? So you start to layer up all that and you get a really you know, definite, clear position in market that's not, you know, some obscure acronym of a name that no one can buy into um i just think the complete opposite i just think of orange construction <laughs> no hate for orange i don't know any of them but yeah. i just think orange constructions and iron slide yeah. <laughs> yeah well you know yeah. it's 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 yeah it's a um if that's how you see the world and that's the kind of uh and you are detail orientated and those things matter to you then they matter to us you know yeah so essentially what Brett's saying is if you care about brand, you can charge high margins. <laughs> <laughs> care about brand, you'll, you, you'll make more money in the long term. There you go. Yeah. 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 So how, so Doan, how, so how did you come to understand the importance of brand? Like, do you, w- would you agree that it's sort of hard and abstract and sort of difficult or, or did it come really naturally for you? I knew I had to have a brand representation. I just didn't know 
how to position that and what level I could take that to until, you know, I met Brett and engaged with him in that way. So um, for me, brand originally was, well, this needs to be representative, you know, simple logo, mm. which is what I used to have and representative of what I do, which which I, I would think most tradies or most people would think like that when they think about a logo or a brand. So I knew a little bit that it's going to represent who I am, so I wanted that to reflect that. But um, to take it to another level, I needed to understand that that was probably well beyond my thinking and capabilities, so yeah. engaging with someone. Well, that's that's good you, you realise that because um, I think most very successful trade businesses who operate in the high-end space who are turning a million bucks net profit a year would scoff at the idea of spending 50 grand on a brand ID package, for example, which is not a lot of money in, in that world. But, um, yeah, it's it's just very interesting. So I'd, I'd like to ask you, Brett, just from a – I understand you, you're very you, – you're sort of you're, you're in the industry because you've worked with such, you know, so many top architects and I understand you guys even do some design work as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. How do you see the construction industry? Or maybe let's just niche it down a bit, like the high-end architectural space. Like how do you see it and are there like opportunities or shifts and trends in the market that – that, that you can uh, look, forecast. It's an interesting question because part of part of us, and I'll be really honest, is that we limit how many people we want to work with in that space because there are certain spaces that are way more mature than others. And we are at a point in our career that um, it's not about look, we need to work with people who are powerhouses of you know top tier of their particular categories because we're geared in that way. And we have any we have infrastructure and people and you know, big team sitting around in a very hungry machine that needs to be fed. So um, we're a little bit discriminatory in terms of who we need to work with in that space and the kind of level of engagement and depth that we want to go into a particular category. So having said that, you know, we've, you know, all our work with architects and things over the years, we, you know, we've had really deep engagements, but we find that certain categories are way more productive and more mature and therefore understand our role better than this particular market, mm. right? That's very nice. That's a very nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and you find that even with, even with, with top-level firms who are very sophisticated, sort mm -hmm. of our peers who are very sophisticated, mm -hmm. um, you find that, that, they're, that they're, there's just that lack of understanding. Um. I don't know. It's a lack of understanding, or like alignment, or yeah. There's just a there's just not an alignment with us, right? So because we're not churn and burn, we're not in there just you know doing their newsletters and their EDMs and you know pumping out like flyers and all that sort of stuff, right? We're just not interested in that. There's people they'll have internal teams, and a lot of architects and developers and things have had and reorientated and pivoted to have internal resources to manage that for them, and that's great because now finally. You know, they can get what they need on a day-to-day -day level and when they want to actually pursue something, at a, you know, they want to create a new brand or they want to reposition or recalibrate it to go after a different market, then they can come and talk to us. So I'm not interested in that kind of work. So I don't have too much a perspective on what's happening. But when we work with people like Durham, what's really interesting, and there's a great adage in business that you are who you're with, right? So for us to be aligning with people who see the world similar to us and actually have really entrepreneurial spirit that really want to take things and do something different with them, then I'll resonate with that and we'll connect and we'll then support them in that venture, right? So Derwin doesn't see the world like 
you know, every other fabricator. He's interested in art. He's interested in design. He's interested in creativity. There's all sorts of things that surround um, Derwin's world. So when we go into a world like that, we say, well, okay, you know, you're working with artists. You, you know, you've got ambitions to, for, the, for a gallery component to what's going on in your space. You, you know, you've got various artists working out of your space. So we can then sort of start to piece together the world and, and then, then help, um, I guess, clarify a trajectory of where that brand might be. Now, that's very, it's a very rare thing, right? So, and for us, we need to have a business that can, resp- that can still function, um, not dealing with a mass of people in a particular space, just dealing with the really extraordinary and interesting ones. And they, their MO, their modus operandi is totally different to the, to the majority of the world. And that's what you see in everything, right? So, you know, I don't have too much perspective on how the industry is sort of going, but I have quite good perspective on how certain people within the industry navigate their space and 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 plan a flag that says this is why we're different, this is how we're going to go about doing it differently. And so, yeah, if you'd ask me, you know, some spe- you know like a specific question on Derwin's future and custom industrial and how he sees the world, then I've got a pretty good handle on that. Yeah. Well, c- can we use Derwin an example as an exceptional figure in in, mm. in in the industry? Like, what? I want to be someone like him. I want to be exceptional, mm-hmm. right? So how how do what you know? How does that de- like? How do you see that developing? And 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 how do you like? What are the key things that you see with Derwin? I understand there's that's like the the breadth of his interests, for example, is is one one thousand percent committed to the vision. <laughs> and relentless mm. in the pursuit of that vision, right? So um, the sheer commitment that he has to the craft, to to creating extraordinary, to, to understanding the role of creativity and design in his work, not just the fabrication of it, you know, all those things, the fact that he's it's 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, it's like totally immersed in that particular world is something that distinguishes Derwin and custom industrial straight away, right? There is no there is no on-off. It's always on. And I think that for us that's a really interesting thing because, um, you know, that sheer investment of that intellectual investment and time investment and craft investment creates things that others just simply can't do for their structure and how they, you know, how they create and have built their own little world. It's not possible. You know, it's just, and and that is the the exclusivity in the product that cannot be attained just by paying more money to a different fabricator. Yeah, or you, it's there's there's intangible qualities and attributes built into an end outcome through virtue of the landscape that he's created for that business that others just simply couldn't. The, no matter how long they worked on, how good the craft skill, one individual component of that business is that it just it won't read in a particular way. So when you see Derwin's work, it's not just the fact that he's a master craftsman, you know, it's not just the craft component of that that makes it that's resonate. It's the fact that the intellectual investment or the time he's spent behind the scenes figuring things out or talking to people or engaging with designers or talking about shop drawings or <laughs> whatever it may be, right, that it's nonstop 24-7 that embeds a certain authority into the work that resonates with people who know what you know who know the difference yeah and not everyone can see that 
And even if they don't know the difference, that guy who's paying $50 million for the skull, he's got, he shares the DNA. So, so he, he feel, he, what do they say? Yeah, real, mm-hmm. the, the kids say real recognize real, right? So that's, that's the, the, that energy and that knowing that no matter how much money I fucking pay anyone, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get it. And it's not about the money. It's about that experience that I'm getting. Yeah. Now, now you're talking about brand. Yeah. Right now. Did I now, just jump? <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 it's good. no, no, no. But this is the intangibles mm. when it comes to the mm. brand to brand that most people don't understand, right? Because every one of those qualities and decisions and investment of time and all of that's those things are actually the intangible qualities of building a brand that we can't fab- three deep can't fabricate, right? You can't you can't fake that. Mm. You can't fake commitment. You're either you're either that or you're not. So we deal with people who. Um, who their clients can see the difference. I've just, I've got so many questions. I'm, I'm going to ask <laughs> another question. Now, I'm going to stop talking. Now, no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to ask you another question now. So I'm just thinking from a very, you know, I'm a younger guy, I'm inexperienced, but I'm just thinking, I'm looking at Doan's business and I think it's such a cliche thing to say, but it's not scalable, right? But then through the brand, the, well, then I, what I go to is through the brand, you can, you can scale that in other ways through art, through media, through X, Y, Z. So can you share, because I know you've thought about this, what, what is that 20-year outlook in terms of how he's going to scale scale the brand and what he does? Yeah, well, I'm not going to give it all away, but there's certainly a Could you just give us a little, just some I, tidbits? And interrupt there. I also understand that it's not scalable. Of course. what I'm doing, but that's the whole world. Yeah. So that's the whole uniqueness as well. So and that by not being scalable yeah. is yeah. ties into that um, – that world that Brett was yeah, talking so about, I, exclusivity. So like I, I would say, well, why do you want? Why would you want to scale that? Mm. You, you would do something else that would add value, that would that that doesn't interrupt the exclusivity of your product, but mm. can also create value otherwise. And and then it it plays into each other. Yeah. You, have you been listening to our? He's <laughs> you bugged you bugged his office. Now you've been listening to some of these conversations. I just think about his business a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Well, I think this is this is really great because again. Um, from a strategic perspective, you're 100% like you would ask yourself the question, why would you scale custom industrial and, and ruin some of its magic? And the answer to that is you wouldn't. You would look at other strategic opportunities to add value back into that business that are scalable if that's indeed what you want out of life um, that that would add value back to do and that would you know that would feed that business that would then allow him to pursue other interests in other areas so you know that's there's certainly those plans underway and i'm not going to be the one to kind of <laughs> give you an exclusive and reveal what some of them are but i think that that's doing's job but i think i understand the eco the, the the future ecosystem of, that's going to surround that business that will allow doing to do other things and flourish in other ways that will add value back into customer industrial no comment. Because quite frankly, <laughs> don't say anything you don't want to say. Because quite frankly, and I, I'm a little bit passionate about this, mm. is this man needs to get fucking paid. Mm. He needs to get paid for his and – I, and I don't, I don't agree that we live in a world where everyone deserves everything, but there has to be a way to leverage his relentless pursuit, his knowledge, mm. his dedication to the craft. Because mm. how many artists, chefs – it's, you know, go just waste away and, mm. and, and aren't, aren't, aren't rewarded because they don't – tackle it from a certain angle. Yeah, well, we talk about these things all the time. So even on the in the car ride on the way over, like we, you know, we're discussing how to leverage the nuances of certain categories and, and you know, the psychology of people to, to kind of 
understand the opportunity from a business perspective to say, well, okay, people, you know, there's a component of the world where people love safe, right? They just need to understand that what they're getting, you know, what they ask for is what they're going to get, right? So, and and not to say that customer industrial doesn't always deliver on that because it's about exceeding expectation at every turn, right? So he does do and does that amazingly well in customer industrial, but there's going to be other things that we might develop as a consequence of, you know, what he does in that space that might be product orientated or might be the amalgam of service and product or, you know, in, in other brands or in other experiences that will allow him to get paid. Like as long as if he's, you know, he's not, he's not um, getting paid or he's not a superstar at the moment, but there's, it's interesting to watch how his work's resonating and becoming, you know, um, with a lot of people. And, you know, it's, it blows my mind how many inquir- daily inquiries, new business inquiries he gets, which is amazing. But I think that we can always dial that up in another that is scalable in, in other areas, in other businesses, mm. in other ventures. So, yeah, it's just a, in many ways, non-traditional model that just takes more work. But that's fine. That's like mm. we love that. Yeah, I mean, nothing good comes easy right i'm just i'm just like because there's like i see with this it's just it's so much potential like there's it just it uh it gets me very excited because yeah so conceptually you might you know custom industrial might be a is a is a beacon in its own right for a certain category or class of people mm-hmm. right so a lot of architects, you know, really resonate with what Doan does because it's helping achieve their kind of visions and what they're hoping to achieve for their clients. And Doan is an arbiter of that and, and helping them kind of bring that to life. But in the same sense, he's solving a lot of problems along the way to help make that happen. And mm. it'd be great for you to talk to that. But mm. I think the value lies in the ability to leverage design and help bring that to life in a really extraordinary way. And if you see custom industrial as a beacon that allows you to attract those people towards that world, then you can bolt on other aspects of that world yeah. to have it. Again, that's the value of brand, right? Yeah. And the, the, the way I see Derwin's business is, and what I'm trying to do with my business is the unscalable work is a is a avenue through which you can build your brand. Mm. That's that's through that mm. you, you know you make a bit of money whatever, but that's mainly there to build brand relationships, meet people like yourself, mm. extraordinary people mm. like Derwin, mm. and then through that you you leverage off that platform. Yeah, and that's something new. Everyone does that, mm. but I think that it's to the level that, you know, there's different levels of that. Oh, 100%. And I think that we're just, and this is why it resonates with me, I'm just not interested in ordinary, right? Like mm. I'm mid to late career now. I've been doing it 26 years, right? I'm only interested for the balance of my career in working with extraordinary people on extraordinary things and that's a really simple way of looking at it right but there's a with that becomes an understanding of who you don't want to work with as well right and what's not going to get you there and there's certain people in the world that i think derwin will work with that will allow him to to make that you know those next level ups all the time and that's exciting for me to watch as well like has have you always had a understanding of this from sort of when you started custom industrial or has it just slowly unraveled and the vision slowly and obviously with with bread and and sort of having amazing people to talk with and bounce ideas off how has that developed it's, seeing the vision it's both it's definitely developed and changed along the way 100 percent, and it wouldn't have got to the level that it has without engaging with bread and conversations and um 
you know, all those sorts of things. So for me, I've always just primarily as a maker starting out, I've always wanted to make things and I've always wanted to make things that are different to everyone else is making. If it starts to get into the mainstream, that's when I know I'm going to take a left-hand turn and go down a path that no one's done before with what we're making. So um, for me, that's always been my approach. And to know that there's other people in the world in different industries who have a pretty similar approach. And I think that's what attracted us in the first place, that, you know, um, both our worlds were not the mainstream, not for everyone. And what we did resonated with each other, but also, um, you know, didn't resonate with mainstream for starters. So mm. I just think that's fantastic. So, um, and then just along the way, it's just a, just developed. And I got to a certain point with custom industrial where I think we talked about this previously, where I'd kind of hit a wall. I wasn't super interested in it anymore. Um, lots of things going on. As soon as I made that decision to want to pursue it really even f harder than I had before, it was a really easy decision to engage with Brett and go, you know, from a brand point of view, I want to go to a point where I haven't been before and I need to understand that further. So to hand somewhat control of that part over it, very trustingly and very, for me, all I was looking forward to was enjoying the experience of being a client of 3D. That was that was the most enjoyment I got out of that and it was just great to engage in that way and, and to, you know, look after my clients very well as I always have, but to have the opportunity to be a client in a world that I always wanted to engage with was just an amazing experience. So for me, that was the primary motive almost rather than I didn't knew I was going to get the end product of where it wanted to go. That was a given just by engaging with Brett. I knew I was going to get that. So for me, the experience throughout was the most enjoyable part of it and the main push to do it as well. Yeah. I mean, like where, where I, one of the first things I, I said is I really wanted, if we could, just just to help people understand the value, you know, in their so. Mm. If you were looking at like a younger guy, let's say, mm. you know, thirty year old guy who's got a trade business, mm. uh, they're doing they're, they're doing pretty good. They're clearing half a million bucks net profit. Mm. What? How how would you? It's so fucking hard. How <laughs> how would difference? you how would you tell them? Hey, maybe you should invest a little bit in your identity. You can't teach that. Yeah, right? and you can't teach attitude and it when just, people come to it you. It pains me because there's so much potential yeah. everywhere. But that's what distinguishes the people, yeah, right? You need that. Mm. I used to always say, like when we were driving around with my partner Georgia, I'm like, look how bad that house looks and this and all that. And she goes, yeah, but those places look make the buildings that you build look even better. You need that. Right, and she's right to a certain degree. So, but I think that the the interesting thing here is that not everyone is built in a way that they would even be thinking about the world in those terms, right? So, if, if you know they'd be making their money, they'd be buying their toys, they'd be doing all those things, right? But it takes quite an you know, quite a different kind of person to say, okay, now that we're enjoying whatever level of success we have, how do we take that to a whole nother level? and um, put in place the next level hooks that will allow me to go and do X, Y, and Z. Right that's now, fair. That's fair. Now, they could yeah. do the same thing for the rest of their life and, and make great money every year and just, you know, tick all those boxes and have all the material things they've ever wanted, right? That's, it doesn't get any more boring for me than that MO, right? Because the money is not the driver. That's not the end goal. It, it's coming along. That will come along the way. But I think that the interesting people that 
we are collectively surrounding ourselves with now don't see the world in those terms. Mm. So I'm never going to be able to help that person. Okay. I'm, I'm, you know, and I don't think that's the nature of it, but there are plenty of people that will, mm. right? But I, and that's great. But I think that the people that, um, that really resonate in our collective worlds and are those that see, that see the world in a unique way, want to do things in a really unique way, want to plant a flag in a space that says, actually, this is what we stand for, um, that differs, may differ from everyone else. And, and a lot of people might not understand that. But I guess those people, call them iconoclast, call them whatever you like, they're always going to be in the world. It's a very, it's a smaller market for us all. But, you know, isn't that how you derive the most value out of life? I, I think also from what you were asking, like how do you get someone to engage in that world who is just a run-of-the-mill tradesman? It's The answer is I would think like this no matter what industry I'm in, mm. whether, no matter what I'm doing. It's just your doing. DNA. It's yeah. just, just how you made so up. Yeah. It's, and that's attitude and that's just the way you think. So you really have to look inward to a person for them to want to change mm. and for, to pursue personal development, to pursue that you get to a certain level in a business and then – you want to like, okay, well, how do we get to that next level? And that means pretty much reinventing yourself and going, putting everything you've uh, built to date on in the risk category and leveraging off that and going, I'm going to live or die by this decision and just go for it. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I guess I would just say to whoever's listening and especially the ones who are saying, oh, this is so pretentious and abstract and whatever, like maybe Good. we're thinking about <laughs> Like it may be yeah, well again. Like maybe, maybe it's not for them. Yeah, I'm not like <laughs> I don't want to convince you, but like it, it it could be it could be a very fruitful and fulfilling thing for you to think about. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's not about you know necessarily about making money for the business. So that's part of it, but it's about the way you think and the way you operate. Yeah, I mean, what like when when people ask me what I what my aspirations are, I just I just I just want to build something. Like mm. it's hard it's it's hard to say. I just want to build something. Mm. You know. Mm. And that's um, but yeah. the other thing. I mean, but if you're what really, type of thing do you want to build? Yeah, and then you start asking. There's a thousand mm. questions mm. in the layer of that, right? Like mm. when you drill down into that, any you know, if you're capable of building something, then it's surely at some point you would say you would you would ask yourself the question: um, Do I want to build A or do I want to build B? And mm. you would you would critique the reasons. And then if you're listening to yourself and understand, um, you know your own aspirations and vision for the world and vision for your success, then you would, it's like a choose your own adventure, mm -hmm. right? Like you would every, every step of the way, you would just assess it against your core values and where you want to be in the world. Yeah. And I think it's, that's a very simple way of looking at it, choose your own adventure, because in every decision there is benefit and consequence, right? And it's yeah. kind of looking at it going, well, you, you know, you might have to sacrifice something at that decision for a longer term benefit. And a lot of people just won't sacrifice make those particular sacrifices on a micro or a macro level mm. to get to the next stage of that. And that's what distinguishes the ones that have a vision and the ones that just are turning up and, you know, doing it every day. And I and you know, to Derwin's point before that he made where the process resonated, you know, working with us, it's the same thing. Like I look at it in terms of it's not as if I have like Financially, we had to work with on Derwin's brand, right? Like, oh, of course. That wasn't, and, the and, and that's why I said to him, like, we're so lucky that I had Richard and, and he mm. had you to work because why would why would you 
that's what I'm saying. We're very lucky. Mm. Yeah. But the thing with me with mm. this is yeah. is that there's that from 3D's perspective, we we have aspirations to be working in a particular way and to be working on projects that our traditional you know brand and creative clients might not afford us. So if you know if we want to develop a product or we want to work in built environment or want to, we want to develop something you know from a form perspective, then Again, we've got our own sort of aspirations and it's just an alignment that works because we, along the way, we're, we're helping each other get to that point. And I think that that's where the real value comes in. I, I'm, I'm very curious to ask Brett about, uh, just talk about something, that things around perfectionism, qu- quantity versus quality, speed of decision-making in the context of creative work. Because there's this big, I mean, the the cliche mainstream is quant, uh, quality over quantity. Mm. Um, I think different scenarios require different approaches. Like with my content stuff, I just think quantity over quality and making more decisions and and, and incrementally improving and compounding those improvements to get a much bigger result in the end. Mm-hmm. But wh- how? what are your thoughts on that? That's really interesting. So... Um from a 3D perspective, it you know, we don't confine ourselves to certain structures like, you know, um, I don't tell our designers or creators at work that they've got 2.4 hours to finish them. <laughs> um, you want to. You really want to. <laughs> it's never ha- it, look, it's, it's never the same with Derwin. Yeah, yeah. How do you, like we were prototyping those things. It's mm. impossible to know. Yeah. Right. So it's mm. the, we, we, there's, there's two kind of things going on from a business perspective of us. David, my, my job with David is to make sure that the business functions and operates and is profitable and goes where it needs to be going in a certain direction. We separate a lot of that from the actual doing of the work, right? So if, say, we might have costed 20 hours on a particular job to achieve a particular outcome, right? If that desi- if the designer working on that job within the context, the confines of the job, you know, the deadlines and all those sorts of things, wants to spend 60, needs to spend 60 or 80 hours on getting an extraordinary result, there is no limit to their ability to do that. We don't impose a scenario where they are unable to do that. So it's interesting, our job um, as business owners is to navigate a course and to run a business that allows that creativity and that level of investment to, to happen and remain profitable. But we, there's, you know, if I step back from the function of it for a minute, there's there's six lenses that we look at everything through, right? We call them the six dimensions of luxury, but, and this will be really fucking Six tangible. dimensions. Six dimensions of luxury. Okay. And this will be really intangible. I'm taking notes. Right? <laughs> but there's things, you know, those lenses, one of them is artisanship. The other, you know, authenticity, creativity, yeah. time, individualism. And the extraordinary, right? They're the, they're the six things that really determine outcomes and business success for us, right? So if we look at the built environment, say we're working on a project and we take those specific dimensions down to a project level, time is a really intangible kind of concept to a lot of people, right? But when you're walking into a retail space, we're manipulating someone's experience of time fundamentally, how they walk through that space, how, what they engage with when they're doing that, how um, you know a salesperson engages with them, the questions they ask—all of that is a manipulation of time. 
So how do we leverage creativity and other, you know the other things that we have in our arsenal and, and when we're working with people like Derwin to, to fabricate and to create that environment, how are we controlling and managing time, right? So there's sort of six, we look at the world through those six lenses and then that's how we create extraordinary things. Wow. So artisanship is one that probably really tangible to this conversation, right? So the level of artisanship that Derwin through Custom Industrial invests in his work is, is one of the dimensions that he goes about amplifying his brand. That's a really easy, tangible one to get your head around. Mm. You know, everything from the patina, you know, the, the, the knowledge that he invests in, you know, the patina of something or the, you know, the knowledge of the construction detail or the articulations of certain joints, all that, art, that artisanship is, comp- is a component of the custom industrial brand. Mm. You know? So that's just one of the things. Mm. Creativity, same deal. As he solved the problems that he's presented with. So through through that lens, when we when we look at something like this idea of perfectionism, let's say it might be uh, you know through in the context of the six lenses, it might be the pursuit of something extraordinary, really trying to make this extraordinary. Mm. How much of perfectionism perfectionism when you're looking at it from an irrational standpoint is stems from insecurity and ego as opposed to really rationally trying to pursue. A result. Oh, I mean, it's that's a. Those things are a, often are a huge component in certain work, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're always assessing the outcome against your personal beliefs, beliefs, and yeah. how you'll be viewed in the world. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism is really. It's a word that we actually don't use. I don't. It's. It's a really foreign word to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's a utopia that, or a particular. It it suggests something that should already be inherent by default, right? We, push, we, we talk about the extraordinary a lot mm. because um, that's about the suspension of reality for a minute and for you to be able to then envisage something that either doesn't already exist or could be totally different from something that already exists. So within that perfectionism or this notion that every detail needs to be considered, if you want to call if that's what we're calling perfection, then that's the default. That's the baseline. Well, I, I also think that perfectionism is a totally subjective call. It's like a, I think this is at a stage now that it's good enough. I mean, it's, it, it's a, it's, but that's what it is, right? It's a subjective, it's a subjective call on good enough. That's got a sort of, <laughs> I mean, how, how do you say, I mean, because you're, I always say that you can always take it to a further spot. It's just sometimes there's restraints in the world that don't allow that. So to be, um, I can't remember what the famous quote is, but always relentless pursuing it, but always um, never satisfied, you know. So there's always another level you can go. You could take that further. You could take this detail further. What if we did this? And there's always what I try and do with that is just take that information and that desire to do that and put that into the next project. So that next project starts at another level that it wouldn't have started. Yeah. But I th- it's interesting just I'm thinking about that, right? We, we were talking about this in the studio or so, something similar to this on Friday when we were critiquing some work that we're working on at the moment on the wall. And I made this kind of, you know, in retrospect, it's probably a bit of an ego-driven statement that, that was like there's certain outcomes that we were looking at on the wall that were that were a reflection of, the designer or maker's capability to only take it that far, 
right? Now, whatever that landscape was, whether it be their skills or whether it be budget or whether it be time or whether it be client culture or whether it be, you know, any number of factors, it only allowed them to get to that point. Well, part of what I was interrogating and challenging and being a bit of a provocateur to the creatives at work on Friday was about was saying, well, that might be their glass ceiling, right? But that doesn't have to be our glass ceiling. It's about recognising at every one of those points when you say, is that good enough? Going, well, actually, is it? And could we take it and subtract or add a detail that allows us to take it to another level or somewhere else that might be, you know, 1% more? And that every job is really the, the you know, the accumulation of all of those decisions. And maybe on the next one, the next job after that, then you take it, you know, you take what you learn from that and take it again another step further. So I kind of think that it's a consequence of it is subjective in relation to your own self, but then again you have the capacity to critique it against other things that exist. Yeah. But that's that's a big part of your role, I, I assume, is to challenge and to and when people say something can't be done or or, or when people say that there's a problem, you know, you you're you strike me as someone who'd see opportunities and and and, and things that we can do to change and improve. Yeah, but I just don't think that it's also like um, not resting on, like it's not that often that we would get a client that's, that would ever say only take it that far, right? They, they, they come to us expecting us to be thinking about all the things that they're not thinking about and to be challenging even ourselves every minute of the day and our kind of relentless culture and that using that environment to further something just beyond expectation, right? So I think it's a demand that we either place upon ourselves or it's just the nature of our respective practices that says it doesn't stop there. Mm. And then you've just got to reconcile that against everything from a business perspective about, you know, you know financial return, whatever, your, yeah. you know, whatever the landscape dem- demands of it. Yeah. So what a, a little bit of a selfish question. So what what advice? You guys are both very successful in your respective um, uh, pursuits. What would you say to a younger person like me who's at the start of their career? What what are the you know such a cliche question, but what like what are the things? Not too many. Just what are the fo- what are the few things that we need to be looking out for and focusing on? What would you would you say? To the, good to the children, yeah. to the to children, children out there. <laughs> well, it's hard. Um, well, that's a generational difference too. Well, and and yes, so, we are so different. Mm. Like I, I'm sure, I mean, you were working with Hardy Brothers on the younger consumer, so I'm sure you, they behave, mm. like we, we behave very differently. Yeah. Like we're less likely to stick something out for 20 years. Yeah, it's interesting. So <laughs> if, if you had have asked me this 10 years ago, I would have said moderation is for cowards, right? I would have said that I've, we've relentlessly pursued our vision for the world and what we want for ourselves 24-7, seven days a week and simply outworked everybody. So I've, I need a nemesis and I just need personally need a nemesis, right, because I need it to as a counterpoint, whether it be a fictitious one or a real one in a competitor, I need that to say, right, well, and in the early days I did this with some of our peers where I said, actually, David Pigeon, or, you know, this person or this person is going to work till like 8 or 9. I'm going to work till 1 a.m. And I'm just going to, sh- through talent and everything I bring to it, I'm just going to out-invest out and just 
you know, and there's plenty of people saying that, but it's a different world now where it's not all about that. So I, but I would still resort back to the fact that, you know, and when I say moderation for cowards, it's, you know, that frogman ballad. It's kind of like a, just a military kind of an expression mm. that says like, you, whatever you do, do it to take it to the absolute limit of, of intellect, capacity, skill, whatever it is, to make sure that it embodies everything that you believe in and you can render that visible to the world because that will resonate with people and people gravitate towards that sheer kind of lunacy of, of just commitment. Yeah. I, like, I mean, I, what, one thing that I really resonate with is, is this idea, you know, I'm a younger guy working with a lot of older people, is uh, one sure way to earn respect is to put in the effort. I mean that's mm. that's universal. You can't. Yeah, and you've got to know yeah. your game. Sorry, yeah. you know, no, the no, other no, thing, no, yeah. the other thing that I think that distinguishes us and you know David and I and, or, and everyone that works in our business is we know our game and our you know what we're doing back to front. So knowledge and the investment of of an understanding of our world and luxury space. If someone was to come, if I'm in a boardroom, and so and a client was to ask me. Um, tell me the difference between luxury and mass market, right? Well, I could spend an hour talking to them about the strategic and creative differences that exist in that world because we've taken the time. In addition to doing our work is understanding our work and the the strategic thinking and foundation of what sits behind those worlds and that's knowing your craft and investing in in understanding the world that that you're working in, right, beyond just the doing of the work. Because that's just what do you reckon? I totally agree with that. And when I first started out, it was, you know, I started out as a carpenter. So everyone had, you know, when I turned up to a job site, all the trades are split and everyone had to know their trade back to front. And I approached it from a point of view that I was always curious, a bit like you are, about asking other trades how they do things. I always wanted to be able to do almost everything with my hands. So I would ask a plasterer about how they're doing this and why they're doing that. And just by engaging on that level of just pure curiosity from when I was younger, asking an older person on on the job site how they did something, they were always taken aback because no one had ever asked that question to that generation. Like they didn't they thought that was weird. But they would always tell you all the good stuff because everyone wants to talk about themselves essentially. So, you know, you could play to that part. But I would say now that advice I would give is breadth of knowledge, not so much depth of knowledge. So know what you do and know it very well and know it to a depth that hopefully no one else knows it too. So you get that understanding and you can speak on your topic and you can execute that very well and make your clients feel very, you know, um, comfortable and trust you in that respect, but also know enough about so many other things that surround what you do, that you can diversify, you can have a conversation down this avenue, you can do other things that support what you're doing as well, not just on the shop floor or in the work on the work site, but also, you know, to be able to engage with clients on another level and talk about what interests them as well. And also so, what impacts your work. Correct. Your ability to do mm. what you need to do within a context mm. of a site yeah. or, or a mm. project. Because you're going into that within, mm. say, an install mm. of a particular project, right? And it's not just about knowing your little bit. It's you, mm. you've you've got you would understand the impacts of your work with on others within a site. One hundred percent. Yeah. 
a really important precursor to that, though, I, I feel like is is developing passion and ambition for something. Mm. How do you go about doing that's that's just a given. How do you do Damn. that? Like how how do you how do you find what you like? Like there's so many like us kids floating around, like still trying to find ourselves. You know, do you know, I think it comes through a bit of commitment to knowing that you will discover though through commitment you will learn and discover those things along the way. Mm. Like you could float around hoping to discover something and through curiosity. Because I'm sure you have those people come through your practice as well. Yeah, um, less less so now, but in the early days, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think that if I was just to reflect on self back in the day, like, you know, I started in fine art, in a fine art world, sculpture, yeah. printmaking, painting, right? And, and I didn't know whether I was good at it or bad at it until someone told me that you should probably take up <laughs> yeah, my sculpture lecture at the top of, told me you should probably take up design right yeah i, I, heard, I, I heard you say that in that RMIT interview. Yeah, yeah 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 and um you know and 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 that was you know that helped calibrate me in a particular direction and that's what i did and then i applied for swinburne two right. two times or whatever didn't get it in the first time but pursued it again and tried it again and did it and then sometimes i joke that you know it wasn't that i knew that i wanted to go into this space i just knew i wasn't any good at maths and it's just understanding that, again, like choose your own adventure, right? that along the way you need to be self-aware enough mm. and resilient enough to take criticism and understand, well, actually it's not criticism, it's just observations of, you know, from people and you take either choose to take them on board or not, right? Mm. But I think it starts with a curious mind. I think it's okay not to know what your passion is. Mm. Um but to be honest about that too. So if you don't know what it is, that's fine. And what Brett's saying, like, keep pursuing something, keep turning up and putting in the work, and it'll present itself. Like it presented it to me, like it, you know, probably ten years ago mm. when I'm on my first projects for custom industrial. Like the satisfaction of delivering that project to that client, that was actually a surprise gift from their wife to them. They didn't know it was getting commissioned, but for him to see that for the first time, and that. You know, just his emotional reaction and, you know, the way he responded to me about receiving that um, gift that I had made with my own hands. Like that's when I knew like, oh, that's a really good moment for me to capture. Like that's a passionate thing for me. So in everything I do, I still just kind of chase that. It's just not the primary anymore. So There's a great proverb that <clears throat> I hate busting these out all the time, but there's a great proverb that says, um, no, first oneself. And then adorn oneself accordingly. No first oneself. Right. So no you've got to. Oneself. Yeah. So if you understand who who you are and you you're and what you're not, then by virtue of doing that, you will you will then pursue yeah. a direction that you can you know that you can then is more true to you. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like listening to the things and saying we're not just turning up and going. Well, I really don't like doing that, and they're not doing nothing something about it. Right. Yeah. Like. You've got to know that you don't like it. You that's know, okay that yeah, you don't like it. And recognise the fact that you've given yourself permission to say, actually, mm. that's not for me. Yeah, like what? even if you're doing – like whatever you're doing, just do the shit out of it even if you don't like it because the the reps will help you find what you do like yeah. eventually. You know, I, I quite quite frankly, I'm not a – I wouldn't say I'm the most passionate about high-end joinery, but for me it's – again, it's a platform through which I can build brand, meet people like yourself – meet people like Derwin and then through these networks, 10 years from now I'll find something magical that I love doing. Yeah, but I think it's a, it's also, yeah, and I think that 
and, and I don't want to, it's not condescending, but it's just an observation, a generational observation from, you know, being um, our generation looking at some of the challenges that are being navigated by a younger generation in that um, they, it's not a utopia. It's not like you'll find a course and then all of a sudden you'll navigate and then 25 years later, you, you know. Like yeah, but we, we, we haven't been the, through anything. Like we don't go through shit. You know, we, well, we, look we, we do in the last 10 years of the world. I'm saying like we like I, I think like so I was born in 97. So like we, we we've grown up a very insulated sort of. Yeah, same life. challenges, yeah. though, like you're looking at the gen, you know, you're looking at previous generations or you're looking at maybe it's, you know, there's more self-referential kind of thing going mm-hmm. on. But it's it's like us, right? Like challenge. Regardless of the challenge, it didn't necessarily define who we were. Like we started the business in 96 off the back of like a financial crisis, right? Like, and then we've had to navigate those things, but we would have navigated them anyway. Regard, It wasn't the environment that defined who we were as we had to define who we were and navigate an environment, right? So I don't think it's it's interesting because, I, you know, we've just all been through the past couple of years and, that's reshaped our business, but fundamentally who we are still still remains, right? Mm-hmm. And what you're interested in, you might just have to make some sacrifices in the next little no, next little bit to, you know, to wear out the the storm. But, uh, you know, COVID wouldn't redefine who we are. Mm-hmm. It just probably tempered some of the ambition. Or tempered, channeled it into channeled more it into accurate other things, you know. What's targets. the word? Pivot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about young creatives? Like what? Like, what are you seeing in this new generation of creatives coming up? What am I seeing or not seeing? Both. <laughs> not um, seeing. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, Dean, do you have a perspective on that from a maker? Oh. And I'll come back to it. Young tradesman. <laughs> um, I'm seeing that um, what I'm not saying is often is the relentless pursuit of just the discipline to put in some hours. And to do it, and actually to know that um, you've got to focus on something to get what you yeah, want, and to give before you take. Well, you've got to chop the wood before you can get the heat from the fire, mate. Mm. So if you want to just go after the fire, then you're you sitting at someone else's fire who's so done you, all the you work. You can't right? afterpay. You can't yeah, afterpay no, the fire. No. Well, that, yeah, exactly. That's a good term. That's, yeah. that's a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So just that's kind of what I'm not seeing, but and I don't know if that's a generational thing or. It's an attitude thing, but if you're of your generation, then um, you would have been brought up by parents in my generation mm. in sort of that gap. So yeah. a lot of that stuff could have been instilled in you already. But um, but and and also instead of shitting on kids of mm. my generation, mm. how, I mean, let's just purely from a business employment mm. standpoint, because you have mm. to employ guys our age. Mm. How are you shifting the way that you you're building your culture or communicating or? Because there's no, I'm adapting the workforce and being flexible in somewhat more like personal needs and personal goals and flexibility, like with work hours and how we work and how we get through the day, and having a lot more communication with people on the shop floor and talking about, hey, this is where we want to achieve this goal. This is this is the job that we're doing on the moment. Like, what's your feedback on how we can build that like can you give me some input onto this and you give some creative control and some decision making back onto them um because more often than not i want to solve everything because that's what i'm used to doing but 
you know, hearing another viewpoint and getting some ideas and it may not end up with that idea, but you're actually going to, you know, have a collective mastermind that solves a problem and it just builds a better team mm. environment. We're all working together. We're all pulling in the one direction to, you know, build some big doors or, or whatever you're doing at the moment to, um, yeah. So I think from that point of view, giving a lot of creative control and flexibility in the workforce to um, allow people to be themselves and have, take some ownership of what they're doing and know that they're part of a bigger thing as well and that they're valued in what they do. I mean, that, that helps bridge that gap between mm. that, that lack of relentless pursuit mm. because that, that's one way to give them some ownership and motivate mm. them a little bit. Mm. Do, are you seeing the same things oh, with your, with your young thing. kids? I think it's interesting because we're right at a point with generational change that our clients are becoming your generation, right? So it's interesting. Oh, no. No, 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 no it's great crazy. because <laughs> it's crazy. It's great because um, up until now, all of our clients have been brand owners, that traditionally probably baby boomers, right, mm. where they've built these amazing businesses. They, um, you know, have, have gone about it in a particular way. But now there's succession, right, where their their children are taking over brands or creating, you know, we're getting clients that are creating new brands that are just thinking about it totally in a different way and they're just reinventing certain categories and coming to us with a totally different MO. So the encouraging thing about for us about that is, is that we've now got an insight into how those guys think about how they see their practice and, and their commitment and how they're shaping their own businesses. But for us, it's exactly the same as, you know, you've got to create the environment to, to resonate with those people. But the demand that I place on them is that when I ask them the question of like why would they want to be, like why do you want to work with us over someone else, right, I expect them to have done all their homework and know exactly how we differ from everyone else in the landscape, right? Now, if they don't know how we differ, they haven't done enough homework, right? Or they, they don't understand our business, how our business is different from everyone else, even from an external point. If you analysed our work or who we're working with or the kinds of things we're working on, and you don't have, you haven't um, taken that on board, and even you know, um, self-regulated before you've come into the building. I mean, that's here's another excellent benefit of having a strong brand is that people aspire to not only have your product but to work with you and to and to learn from you. Yeah. So you might see, especially with your how established you are now, that the kids come in are still relentlessly pursuing. That's and, that's and the that, clarifier, right? Be, because you because you've. That's the brand we're projecting. You don't. Derwin doesn't need to go out and ask for work because he's got work coming. Mm. You don't need to go out and 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 seek uh, and, and and you know put ads up on seek, for example, for mm. graduates because they're lined up out the door and they're presenting to you decks and they're and they're showing up. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. But like, that's another benefit of having a strong yeah. brand. And so, a hundred percent. And the interesting thing, you know, there's all sorts of benefits of brand. That you're talking about the cultural benefits that come with projecting a particular position, which we talk about it's an intangible benefit that mm. a lot of people can't get their head around. But the other thing, how we've done that, like there's little micro things about how we've done that along the way where we've never credited individuals within our practice mm. on projects, right? If it's a three-deep project, it's a three-deep project. Now, that's a really challenging for for a lot of people. Has creatives. Been, creatives, right? But yeah. the benefit I drew of that, that thing. Yeah, but the benefit of that, the, the, what they don't often think about is they're deriving 26 years of value that everyone that's come before them has put into every project, right, 
the, the minute they buy in and they're into that 3D brand, they've derived all of the brand equity and value of every project that everyone has ever worked on cumulatively over the past 26 years instantly in their CV. So 3D is an institution. Well, 3D is a, is a kind of a, it's a thing that it's the sum of its parts, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not about David or I. I mean, David and I could have easily put our name to to every project that's gone out. We we didn't do that because we knew building the value of 3Deep, the long-term benefits of that, say from a commercial point of view, we wanted to sell that business, right? Well, it's not linked to me or David. It's an entity that if you had the right people in could still function and do what it needs to do. So it's been really, there's these little micro decisions along the way that have been challenging for a lot of people along the way that they didn't get their own name recognised in a particular way or attributed. But here's the point, like, you're building this brand and this entity and this thing that whether you're there five minutes or you're there for five years or, you know, the whole time, you're deriving value from the work that everyone else has done. Now, it could be a small conversation we had with the accounts guy or it could be a, a fleeting conversation with um, a client that's just come in the door. But, you know, the people that are working there now, well, you know, they might not have directly worked on, a, you know, the interior design of the new Hardy Brothers store in Sydney, right, but they're going to derive value from it. Mm. So then you, you spoke about, so that's that's one aspect of your culture. Mm. What, and you said, and you mentioned in passing that culture is something that's very hard for, for, for some, a, a lot of business owners to understand mm. and, the, you know, the value of. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking for the education piece again because I'm, I'm desperately trying to provide value to our audience. How, what are the, the pillars there, you know, w- with culture and building culture and what they should be thinking about? Well, it's interesting. You've got two people, two different people in the room at two different stages of, of that, right? So I'll probably throw a D on that because um, initially because there's some interesting thoughts about early stage culture, you know, um, setting in place some of the hooks for culture that D, Derwin's working on at the moment that I think, you know, that – we've had in place for a lot longer. and I can, So I'll give a late-stage version of okay. that and maybe... I love that. See, if you want to start with the... What are my things I've got in place? Well, I think that you, <laughs> you have a vision for um, for the culture of custom industrials that you hope that new employees will, will build upon mm. and contribute towards. Yeah. So I think you've got a good understanding of of like the discipline or the dedication or those kind of qualities that you would like to bring to the business through any new employee that you're going to bring on board. Yeah, it'd be nice to have people who want to come and work here who don't just want to come. And the first line they say to me is, I want to come here because I want to learn everything from you. I'm like, well, that's a given. You're going to do that anyway. What value are you bringing? What what cultural value are you bringing to the mm-hmm. business as well? Like how do you integrate with what we're doing? Um, you know, I think early stages is creating an environment that is a place where people want to come and work. So that's, you know, comfortable, visually stimulating. Um, you know, my workshop's pretty clinical. Like a lot of people comment on how tidy it is and how how visually it looks compared to other things. We've got a gallery space that's still under construction. So, you know, when employees and clients will walk into the building, that's what they see first. They're in an environment that sets the tone to what's behind that workshop door. So. Um, you know, culturally trying to build that, which is not very common in the building industry, not very no. common in metalworking at all. Um, <laughs> everyone's really shocked when they come in and they see the workshop because it's not what you would expect, but that's... And there's no calendar on the wall. 
There is. <laughs> there is. A, oh, there is. There okay. is a calendar on the okay. wall. Okay, I didn't look closely enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if I should mention what previous calendars there used to be. You're not talking about Chico Roll calendars. You're no, talking no, about no. Something We're new. talking about <laughs> oh, yeah. calendars from um, a certain country that's probably yeah. not popular at the moment. Yeah. So, um, but my partner Georgia makes the workshop calendars. And um, yeah, they're pretty interesting. But <laughs> you were just talking about metal shops, so I had to mention the calendar. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Not definitely not kind of no, 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 yeah. definitely not <laughs> yeah. those type of calendars. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's about, your environment. Yeah. Is, is also a reflection of the what you're saying there. Yeah. Is your environment is a reflection of the culture in which you want to build, right? Yeah. Like you've got a gallery, literal gallery, in mm, front yeah. of your space that is mm. going to be a long term forum for the display of young artists and art and and mm. and, and, and mid term or late stage arts, whatever it may be, but why would do and put that in there you know in a, mm. in, a, in the fabric you know preceding the fabrication mm. in the shop it's it's, it's because it's valuable floor space that we should be manufacturing out of too it's what yeah. 70 square meters mm. of gallery that's not huge but it's mm. like well that's an area that we don't essentially work in yeah but yeah. it sets the mm. cultural tone for employees to say you know for those curious minds that might be interested in this artist or that mm. might want to engage with art in a particular way or design in a particular way so another thing culturally is we have an artist in residency program so we have a few artists that we work with on a commercial aspect as in they engage us to do a lot of the metal fabrication or installation and, and resolve from an engineering point of view their um creative sculptures and their creative um things that they're doing so we invite those artists to be able to work out of the workshop during that time and give them free reign in the workshop to here's a table, you know, if you need to complete some work on here or we need to engage in the afternoon. So with what you're doing and, and do some problem solving and decision making from their point of view and assist them in that way. So the opportunity for employees to work shoulder to shoulder with, you know, contemporary artists who, um, you know, I just don't know too many other places where that's yeah. an opportunity and to have conversations with them around, you know, coffee breaks and things like that with artists and just engage with them on that level and that can be reflected in what they pursue and it's not just working with the same materials all the time and it's, you know, and to see where they end up, those projects. And so you've worked yeah, you, side by side with the artist and you get that, to install it. There's like a seesaw point mm. of leverage. You, mm. Your employees learn from the artist and the artist Get, derive value from your problem solving, your yeah. fabrication space, your all, all those. It's things. about, and that's a point of learning for the employees too, to understand a pure creative on that level. It's really interesting to look at it from that point of view because a pure creative does not really care about your timelines, does not care about <laughs> what you have to order, and it's a four week wait. So my job around that with working with creatives, it's kind of like herding cats in a way. Like you have to kind of set some kind of loose guidelines, but you're kind of directing from afar and nudging because you've got to get out of the way of the creative space. If you start to interrupt that, then it's, you know, that's not a good good thing. So, <laughs> But, it, you know, we always get a result and um, I just think it's a great opportunity for anyone to work in an environment where you get to work around someone like that, you know, and what you can pull out of that and what you can add to your breadth of knowledge. So I'm not sure if that's still answering no, your question. No, that's, that, that. that's perfect. <laughs> On that, culture that's and what we're doing, yeah. Maybe I, I'm early stage as well, so maybe I'll share my thoughts on that, yeah, and then yeah. you can you can you sure. can critique and help. So, uh, my business is almost three years old. We we, we do high end architectural joinery, supplying to architects. You know, certainly not at the level that that, that Derwin's working. We've got five five employees. Um, I'm not sure. So, 
from a physical standpoint, I don't have like an art space or whatever. Mm. The, the, it's, I think it's for me, it's very much through just constant communication and reiteration with mm. the people about, uh, you, know, we're, we're, you know, it's about accountability. It's about there's no fear. You know, we never react to things. We only respond. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we th th there is a th there is a pursuit toward excellence, but it's it, it comes from a place of functionality and rationality. Um, and we're trying and and the product that we're delivering is not the cabinet; it's the client experience. That is mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. so the, it's these things. You know, big one is lack of fear. I don't. There's there's no fear. There's always transparency. You know, we, I, you always know what I think about you and I certainly hope in my heart that I always know what you think about me and the company. So those, those are the things in a nutshell that I think about. All of those things are exactly what we have and we <laughs> hope to promote in our space yeah. and in our culture 100% of the time. So the fact that we can help, David, my job is to help suspend the some of the oppressive nature of everyday reality of having to do things and actually allow them a space and a culture in which they can flourish without fear to without limit is a really big component of of our studio so in whatever we're doing you know i'm not burdening our in creative employees with like cost like the 20 hours thing you were talking yeah about it before. just doesn't happen right so they don't have to and all our creatives don't have to deal with clients right so we've got account service right that that actually is a buffer between the conversation and the pragmatic conversations and functional conversations that have to happen, you know, about landscape, budget, timing, blah, 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 right? All those things, scheduling, trafficking, whatever. Our creatives are just there to be creative, right? They, don't, is, have to, they is, don't have to worry about any yeah. of that. So in the same way wow. that you're saying that accountability and kind of, you know, not putting a limit on it, like we, our job is to create an environment which that particular employee in that particular space can just flourish, right, and just take it to a limit that, you know, they're afforded the opportunity to take it to a limit that we're not imposing anything on. And then really what we do is then reconcile that against the functional aspect of the space. But, you know, where, about where people sit, how that flows in the building. So even we've arranged the narrative of our space in terms of controlling time with it's all open plan, right? So everyone can hear everything that's sort of going on and they hear my conversations from a business perspective or costings or whatever it may be. You know, they're some of those things we shelter, but it's an open plan office, right? So it's not as if people can't hear those things or at the boardroom when I'm meeting a new client, they, they hear the questions I'm asking them. They hear the responses and they're getting kind of, you know, pre-learnings before the job's even in the studio. So, you know, we set it up the function and the flow of that studio that marries to workflow and that essentially can go through the machine and out the other end where everyone's aware of what's going on. So transparency for us is a big thing as well. So that's that's remarkably interesting mm -hmm. that your creatives are less client-facing than I would have expected, which is zero. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then you must have an amazing way of funneling through the brief how do you create that brief when they? What, what, yeah, I was about to say, create a brief. What, we don't get we, we don't get briefs. No, I'm saying you, but internally you have to give briefs to yep. to your creatives. Yep. So so you so is it just you get the you meet the client, craft the craft the strategy, mm -hmm. and then on a, on a tactical level, mm -hmm. how is that 
passed on. Yeah, well, t- yeah. Is it correct. just a, like a handover deck or like what, what, what does yeah, that look so like? So a lot of the time we're working, you know, say with the Hardy Brothers, we'll just use those as an example. We spent nine months initially with that client doing the strategy, right? 300-page deck mm. took, you know, majority of the year that set the course and the roadmap for the next five, ten years with that business. Every one of the staffs across that strategy they know all of the individual components, whether you're in creative account service, production, strategy, whatever you know department you're in, you know where that client, the aspiration and the vision for where that client's going intangibly, just whether it all relates to you or not, you know, you're expected to understand what it means and the potential impact it might have on your work. So when it comes to delivering a specific brief that that is 100% tactical, when we go to design, say, the new store in Sydney, all the ingredients, that, that creative will know the ingredients that they're dealing with for that client before they even get to that particular job. So whether it be a campaign, whether it be the store design, they'll, they'll, they'll bring that ingredients to the store, to the store design and say, okay, we need, there's an intellectual investment we need to bring to that store design and here's some of the notions that we're looking at, whether it be classicism or you know, modernism or whether it be kind of, you know, a functional aspect of a cabinet or a, you know, or a display stand or a point of sale stand. We need, and it's really high touch, high intensity for the leaders of the executive of that business to be able to deliver them, deliver the tactical brief to them. But they've got an inherent knowledge before they even get to that, that we make sure that we, everyone's across. Yeah. So that when they pick up a new brief, they know the DNA of that client. They know the long-term vision. They know how mm. it's contributing towards the, the bigger picture. That that makes sense. You know, like I, I don't know why I thought you, the creative needs to be with the client. I mean, we, I, I'm client-facing. Mm. I understand what the client wants. We produce shop drawings mm-hmm. and that is the, the brief. Like mm-hmm. that is the, like everyone just, mm-hmm. just build off the drawings. And that is a, a, so much more efficient and the right way to do it compared to having your tradesman call the architect and say, how do you want? is done yeah, yeah i guess mean, we've just got to a sense. point where that you know over the years we've had a structure that are, that's allowed us to do that with multiple account service and all that sort of stuff but i just think it's always been there you know like i think that we need to there's certain skills that creatives have that we don't want to burden them with other things that subjugate that skill you know like if you're thinking about the purity like, of the creative's mind. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, and, and the, they well, have to well, traverse, they've got enough to deal with, right? Like mm. they have to, tr- they'll one minute have to be looking at doing, you know, working on an e-commerce website for that client. And then the next thing they're working on the interior and the next thing they're working on a campaign, right? Like mm. the sheer headspace that takes to be able to switch between that every other 20 minutes, you know, every other hour, right? It's like burden enough in a way. Mm. But not only can, if you're conforming that into a regular work day, as well. So like, <laughs> yeah. okay, not only do you have to transfer all those spaces, but you have to do it in a regular work day between whatever, eight and five or whatever you're doing. Totally. Like, that's the only time you can be creative. And they're working on multiple things. Yeah. So super hard. Yeah. yeah. And like, do they really need to worry about like the, how we program the hours on a particular job or what the, the client's saying to us behind the scenes that, you know, that if they don't like something like, you know, like if, if I'm not buffering that and fighting on their behalf and actually advocating and presenting that, because we even present all the creative on behalf of the creatives, right? If I don't know all that and not advocating on their behalf, sometimes if that sort of goes through to them, it might affect them in a really negative way that that they might skew a particular job, right? Like, yeah. Um, so I, we just don't burden people with 
unnecessarily you know, things that might impact on their core skill. Yeah. And, and that's that, just something mm, that we've that, you know, that sounds like it'd be so so freeing for for, for the creatives as well. Yeah, harder for other aspects of the business. But mm. yeah, you know, like means mm. that but I think it comes back to the transparency. Like even if they're not working on a client, then you know, everyone in the office is expected to know what that client is, where mm. they're going, what they stand for. And that makes the the resulting conversations and the accumulative dialogue about that client build over time and the knowledge that they gain over time just be that much deeper and richer, whether they do one thing for that client or do 100 things. But essentially that's what your clients are paying you to do is to is use this collective engine to- I think so. To create, create strategy and work. Yeah, I think so. That's incredible, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I, yeah, I don't know why I didn't. I thought that that your designer has to be a client facing. Yeah, that doesn't. In the early days, I mean, when yeah. it was Dave and I, it was when there was yeah. two of us out of college. It was like you mm. had to do everything, right? Yeah. But I think then, even in the early days for our business, we had to then, I had to distinguish between roles. Yeah. Right? Because you all doing the same thing for everyone isn't the most efficient way of doing it. Mm. Sometimes. Yeah. So just collectively over the years, we've just de developed different, you know, developed our own narrative of how to deal with that and all the little systems that every person needs to do their job and how it works as a crazy little ecosystem. But just for us, that's how it works. Other yeah. studios, also yeah. to allow, to not put the restraints of you've got 20 hours to do this onto their creative, to not put that pressure on them, to allow them to do it in 40 or 60 hours, you've got to be so efficient in other areas to counteract that. Yeah, so totally. you've got to keep on your time all the time, which is why even in the workshop I'll always explain that, like, here's the whole job. Let's break it down into all its components um, or whatever that job is. And where all the known stuff is, because we do, do so much creative stuff and so much um, prototyping and one-off stuff that we have to spend time developing that, and that's like a creative space. Mm -hmm. So... I can't put a time restraint on that component of the job, but in other areas where you're like, okay, we just have to weld this and grind that or whatever, like go as hard as you can in that because that's where you're going to give yourself the time to allow the time in the other areas. Mm. So it's always that it's, they're pulling against each other all the time um, and it's kind of similar with what you're saying. Yeah, look, the, the, and we've got yeah. deadlines, right? Yeah. Like mm. at the end of the day, you still mm. got to deliver by a certain time. So it's not as if we're hedonistic in the allocation of our time because we're all business people. We still need to make money in that environment. Mm. But I think that it, there isn't such a transactional nature to a formal transactional nature to each component that I've witnessed in other studios through other friends that have worked in other spaces, right, where they're literally given a landscape that marries to the number that's been given to the client. Yeah, you're doing it in a much more sophisticated way. Yeah. I, well, it limits the end result by doing that. Well, well, it does whatever it does, but I think mm. that it's just not something that reconciles well with how we go about doing the work. Even if we wanted to, we probably couldn't. We're not built that way. Yeah. That's something that I'm really going to think about in terms – because we, the, the way I run the workshop is very like everything has – like we have times against everything. And obviously we can't – it's impossible Everyone to – right? It's impossible to have an estimate that's that's even relatively accurate doing the kind of stuff that, that you do or, or That's I the do. most common yeah. question I get. How do you quote for that? Yeah, it's <laughs> – <Yeah. laughs> well, well, I'll probably lose on every job, yeah, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah, a part yeah, of that loss in everything. But at the yeah. end of the day, as long as it's not reflective in the end outcome, yeah. then there's the magic. You just can't focus on that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. 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 I, I have a um, another selfish question. So I, I've been head down doing a lot of research in NFTs for the last year. 
in the world of luxury um, consumer behavior, access, um, uh, you know, being being part of communities, uh, you know, exclusivity, uh, and having that be able to be 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 traced on a public ledger is is that something that you guys are exploring and thinking about? Oh, uh, our clients are. Mm. We we have only so much bandwidth, but I think there's I there's interesting. I mean, it's changing the game for a lot of our clients, right? So whether if you're, particularly in fashion, mm. so there's a massive tectonic shift in fashion to understand how certain clients will leverage those communities or indeed invest themselves within those worlds to provide another avenue in order to present their product and market it and do all sorts of stuff. But we've got traditional clients looking at the next evolution of their business that have been traditionally in a physical kind of product world, like Diamond, for instance, how they're going to navigate the change in their business to be part virtual and to own territory within that digital space that they can claim as much ownership of inside that world as they have outside that world. But but even even using leveraging that technology to create better, more desirable, more mm-hmm. you know experiences in real life, whether it's you know in, instead of um, access via a sort of a relationship with a salesperson or accounts mm. manager or mm. something mm. with with a retailer, mm. maybe there is a a a uh, a blockchain token that 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 represents your access mm-hmm. and that and that and then and yeah, I, I, I the just trick is that, get yeah. Look, this mm. that's a. I mean, a lot of our clients are still getting their head around what the opportunity of that space means for their traditional mm. sandstone businesses. So. Some are seeing it as, you know, product opportunity. Some are seeing it as an experiential opportunity. Some are seeing it as a customer service cultural kind of thing and others relevance. Mm-hmm. You know, how do they navigate all of those kind of notions and why are they – and first it starts with understanding why, why are we being in that space and how is it going to value our business over the long term, right? They're all the mm-hmm. strategic business slash brand decisions they're going to have to make. Yeah. Who are they in that world as opposed to is it the same thing they are in – physical world like we're the ones that help kind of flesh it out and help them navigate some of those questions to see what for them to kind of see what the opportunity is in those spaces before they even go and launch in those or leverage that Mm. space or launch into that space i mean i mean i i guess in the fashion world have you seen the work that let's say nike acquiring artifact Mm. or um adidas partnering with punks um or um uh, 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 I think uh, Prada and Adidas did something in yeah, there. Yeah, well, Gucci well. did an t- entirely yeah. um, digital runway show. Yeah, you know, for audiences for a, for a, an exclusive audience in VR. Mm. Right now, that's you know, there's little, little skirmishes and you know that are set that are kind of tactical ex- um, skirmishes that are feeding back into a longer term strategic play. Um, Part of that's cultural relevance. Part of that's business opportunity. Part of that's product development. You know, it's just all the normal complexities of business in a different environment. Like, mm. so I think that you know, cultural relevance shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, because there's a tectonic generational change, and for certain clients that have never had a customer under thirty years old, right? <laughs> they can, for them to understand that their new customer is a really challenging thing, right? Like. How are we going to remain relevant 
and bridge the gap between the old guard and the new guard. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. from a business perspective, mm -hmm. that's like. I mean, like I, I could very well, one particular, one example of an idea is let's say eight years from now, uh, Derwin has a, uh, is going to release a collection of, of, of 200 art pieces in a collection mm -hmm. that, that I don't see why, like, look, this is a, just a general, mm -hmm. I don't see why that, that wouldn't, that sale wouldn't occur via NFTs mm. and have the NFTs represent the ownership of those, those, um, yeah. the, the, the 200 art pieces and then the community that is built around those 200 art pieces. Mm -hmm. And then you can explore having variations in the pieces as well that are, that are also reflected and, 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 and authenticated in the digital. hundred percent. So we're working on a project at the moment. Let me give you an example of how we've had to think about that together. Yeah. So we're, we're both working on Three Deep's 25, 25th anniversary um, vessel, this idea, this piece of work. And we've been working with Derwin on it for about a year, looking at the kind of the, the vessel itself and the form that it might take in terms of how we deliver this to a client. Um, part of that work, we're going to burn our entire archive for 25 years and we're going to create a, um, a glass sculptural piece that's, that's contained within this outer vessel that, Derwin's making and it's a piece of art. We'll mint that. We'll, we'll, we'll film and record that entire process mm -hmm. and document the entire making of that piece, the burning of the work, the creating of the vessel, the you know the making of the glass, all of that. And that film, that p that mm. that work itself will be an NFT. Yeah, one of twenty five that yeah. you will purchase. And as a consequence of buying the NFT, you get the physical artifact. Yeah. But then the NFT for that work obviously exists and the, the, the token mm. for that exists and it has its own inherent value. And random, this is not what you're doing, but but and, and that NFT gives you access to a three-hour consult with- For instance. With, with, mm. with you. Yeah, for instance, could do that, right? Mm. And, and and that can be sold onto someone else. To me, totally. I really want three hours of your, your, yeah. of your time. Or this one thing, you know, that-, mm. that Contain, you know, and well, look at, I mean, there's so many of that thing, those things in it, but then there's the, the, the question that a lot of people are asking is the value of the NFT to the ob physical object itself, right? Mm. Like which one holds more value? It, it's, it's no different to us deciding that, that the diamonds have value or, or, or totally, whatever. It's an arbitrary it's, it's, value of a market that's yeah. been created mm. with a particular purpose. Mm. And the great thing about that is, is that, even though there's 25 of the art, only 25 of the actual physical artifacts themselves, right? Like part of those could be, you know, um, it could be diffused in the, might turn into 200 individual components mm. over time or not. So the, the kind of democracy, the democratization of a, of a token and a thing mm. um, is a really interesting space for us. But we could have just chosen to create a physical artifact to represent you know, our 25 years on the planet, but we then, it would be exclusionary for a whole lot of people. Mm. So there's a kind of- I mean, have you have you seen Tom Sachs' project, Tom, Tom Sachs' Rocket Factory, where it's, um, you can you can buy, uh, Tom Sachs is the New York artist. He, right. He, he, uh, and so you, it's a rocket factory and you can mm. buy the nose cone, the body and the tail of the rocket. Mm -hmm. And if you get all three pieces and there's different brand there's so tom sack his work is like putting like you know using big brands like chanel mcdonald's mm -hmm. hello kitty things like that and mm -hmm. creating like weird pieces of art mm -hmm. so he might have a 
uh, he, he had like a Trojan condom nose cone or mm -hmm. like a or like a <laughs> or like a Hello Kitty body or whatever. And you can yep. combine those. And then if you combine three pieces together on the blockchain, mm -hmm. then he will physically make a rocket that looks like that. Yeah. And then he will launch it, mm -hmm. recover it, and then send you the physical piece mm -hmm. as a th like. But that that kind of that's kind of like that desire and the dream and that's totally. like, like that's like does anyone who needs a who needs a, a you know a rocket a condom rocket a condom like, rocket yeah right? like it's not about that yeah it's about the you know the value of there's also I mean that's what a lot of yeah. challenges a lot of people right mm. the value of an idea mm. yeah so I think you know there's that's the whole new frontier that I think will be exciting for people like Dern to understand how we might take some of that work and thinking and transfer it into that space. And it will challenge a lot of people. Yeah, I because I, I spoke to you about this though, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I'm and it's so exciting because I think that is one of the. I mean, that is one way that artists are getting paid now. Mm. Man, in, look in the it's like trailing, trailing commissions, man. Like everyone's trying oh. to get their head around the fact that the 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 mm. originator, the mm. the creator of that, will get mm. a trailing commission on the sale of that for. For, a, for, for it's built is into that the, how Amway works. <laughs> yeah, it's built, it's built into it built yeah. in this built sure. into the smart contract, yeah. and and as long as the platforms that are transacting mm. those those uh, items respect that contract, mm. there's a you know Picasso isn't going to be worth he's going to be his family's going to be making money on that mm. for it. But actually, Picasso is such an out of the world thing. Mm. Just think about the artists who can make fifty grand a year or hundred grand a year. Totally, so, like mm. that's. It's in just entirely new market. I think it'll be really interesting. I think the last two years has played into that market too. Mm. Like, mm. you know, the remoteness and isolation and lockdowns and things like that has actually helped that come to the forefront even more in the last couple of years mm. of the NFT. Mm. So. But again, that's how we're how we are working with Derwin on mm. creating the physical artifact that benefits the value of the NFT. Yeah. Like and, and, and even us being able to recognize how we could work together on creating an extraordinary object. Right, mm. a vessel that's going to house this other thing that, you know, like that's the sacrificial burning of the work and then working mm. with a glass artist on integrating that into a glass object that the vessel holds and then turning that entire process into an NFT in order to connect with the next generation, right? Well, who, like, you're either built that way to think about doing that stuff or mm. you're not. And maybe it's just wank to some people. Like they just don't care, right? It does well, sound pretty wank. Yeah, that's fine. Well, yeah, of course yeah. it does. Yeah. Like, you know, you say it out loud and people just go like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you that's do that? That's why I don't thing? talk about my NFT investments to people because they're like, <laughs> you're part of a pyramid scheme, man. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Mate, let me save you from that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. And that's fine. Like, there'll always be those people. But yeah. I'm not there. We're not here to convince those people. We're just here to kind of resonate with the people that might be Kind of that might resonate mm. with, right? Yeah. And the less of those are better in a way. Yeah, well, Somewhat. you know, and again, it's the art of war, isn't it? it like mm. you look at a, you know, you might look at an average outcome and it's the Baudrillard thing where it's not a cat because it's a dog, right? Like it's you look at this thing over here and, and by virtue of that being what it is, it just makes that better. Yeah. So, you know, there's we often talk about things like that as well. Fuck, this is a remarkably <laughs> interesting conversation. <laughs> like... This is a this is amazing. Well, hopefully, it resonates with you know the people out there, your listeners yeah. that actually can see some value in thinking about things in a different way. Yeah, and I just I know there's going to be some people who are like, like who are these wanky dickheads like sure. talking about this? But I really encourage you to just have an open mind, please. Yeah. Well, I look at it and go, we're all going to make cabinets. We're still going to do brand and we're still going to make like, you know, we're still going to fabricate yeah. a, a handrail, right? Yeah. Like at the end of the day, we still mm. all do those things. Yeah. 
and that'll that's the that's just but that's the baseline, right? But oh, then yeah. built into that, I'm always going to do a handrail that's got some kind of detail on it that no one else in the world would do <laughs> yeah. that. Well, well, when you can just put and a here we go again. Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. No, this yeah, this is is I mean, this play this is such a on a selfish level has been so amazing because I'm so fascinated about all this stuff and. Um, you know, you were once young like me, and you're still young, but I, I'm a little younger than you, and and I'm sure you you flexing can you can I'm flexing. I can see it. See it. But, <laughs> but like I'm saying, I'm sure it's you can. Complimentary backhand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can you can relate to the you can relate to the that hunger for for, for learning and for so hundred percent. So it's remarkably mm. valuable for me. So I I can't oh. thank you guys enough. For, well, thanks for an awesome. It's, thanks for you us. don't often get an opportunity to talk to people in these terms. So mm. for us to be able to take it outside our little worlds mm. and to be able to talk to someone who it resonates with is always super cool. Yeah. And I think that that if if someone had a if I had a, had a heard a conversation like this back when I was trying to get into first year of design school, right? Like mm. you can't be what you can't see or you can't hear, right? So it's mm. kind of like if it provides a license to say to someone who only thinks about graphic design in really lineal terms, right? Logos. Logos, right? Mm. Websites. Websites. <laughs> and then, then mm. great because I, w- I would still thought our world was just that mm. and that there wouldn't have been an opportunity to think about things in other terms. Yeah, and, and that, that's why I was, I was so desperately trying to ask those questions before because if I hadn't had Uncle Yu, if I hadn't had Richard explaining these things to me, I just I wouldn't have I, – I, I don't think – I think or maybe it would have taken me a long time. So I think it says a lot about you too, Charlie. Yeah, you know, totally. You've got an open mind and you're willing to listen to that and, mm. you know, glean some value out of that as well, whereas not a lot of people are. Yeah. You know, pro- not programmed that way. So, Mate, I'm trying to – I'm trying to do – I'm trying to do, you know, but, you know, I, I've decided and it's going to sound egotistical is that I'm going to do really fucking extraordinary things. So mm. th- I have to, that that's, that's a non-negotiable. Yeah, so well, it's like riding a bike, mm. right? And yeah. I think this is one of the things that I said to D really early on, doing it really early. It was, yeah. it's like business is like riding a bike. You go where you look, mm. right? So if you look over, mm. if you're on a motorbike, you get, look over there, that's what, you, if that's what you're interested in, that's where you'll go, right? Mm. So I think it's the more of those points that you can illustrate to people in terms of different opportunities, then the more likely they are to look in that direction and make a commitment to going that way. I think it's also about looking up and looking out, essentially, mm-hmm. not looking down. Because if people get into their groove and they're just in that and they're looking down all the time, metaphorically, and they're just staying in their lane. If you look up and look left and look right, there's so many other opportunities to go. Mm-hmm. You'll crash less. Fuck. Stay open minded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I just, just be open. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I encourage everyone to be open minded and, and sort of humble yourself and be able to listen to. Take risks. Look yeah. at it. Think about what the possibilities are. Yeah. Don't settle for what yeah. you have to be doing all the time. Yeah. Taking risks is good. Like, I've always looked at it like, what's the worst, that, worst situation I've ever been in my life? And it's like, well, I've always been able to feed myself. Mm. Always someone had a roof over my head. Might have struggled with money at times, but it's not that bad compared to what is happening in some mm. parts of the world. Mm. So why not bet on yourself every now yeah. and again and put everything on the line? It, I know? mean, it, especially in a country like Australia where mm. you won't starve, you ha- always will mm. get medical treatment, mm. and, and mm. that is an excellent base for – the same way you don't want to trouble mm. your designers with account stuff yeah. and mm-hmm. hours, it's like we have – 
especially young kids, we have an excellent platform because, like I said, we're not going to starve. There's a massive supply of labour always. Mm. You know, COVID aside, like I don't care. Like mm. you can find a job and make money on the weekends and do all those yeah. things in Australia. You know, so it's a great place to to be to to make something. Totally agree. Love it. Should we end it there? Sounds good. Feels right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So Thanks much. for having us. Thank yeah, you so yeah. much. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.